Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church PCA in Collierville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, missioncollierville.org. So our text this morning is Mark chapter 4, and we see the popularity of Jesus growing. It has grown to the point that he has now in a boat along the seashore, and he's teaching to a large crowd. And specifically, he shares with them the parable of the sower. Now, there are two things that we're going to look at regarding the parable of the sower this morning. The first is the power and significance of the Word of God. Number one, the power and significance of the Word of God. The second thing we're going to look at is that salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. But before we begin, there's a footnote that I want to examine, and that regards the nature of parables. We see Jesus teaching in this form, but you need to understand and realize that Jesus doesn't always preach in parables. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. But on this particular day, in this particular instance, this is what he uses in order to communicate with his audience. Now we know on a very base level that parables are illustrations, real-life illustrations to communicate spiritual truths. Real-life illustrations that communicate spiritual truths. And that is what Jesus is doing as he shares with his apostles and his disciples and this large crowd. But we see later in our text that Jesus gathers the apostles around him and he's trying to give them a deeper understanding regarding the meaning of parables and he tells them that it also involves judgment. That parables are a form of judgment. Now, we have been working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark and we have seen in chapter 2 and chapter 3 as Jesus is being accused by the Pharisees that people are hardening their hearts regarding His ministry. And so Jesus is trying to help His apostles understand that the problem with the people is not that they cannot intellectually understand what I'm saying and what I'm teaching in these parables, in particular the parable of the sower. That's not it. That for many, their hearts have become hardened. Their ears cannot hear. And so for them, these parables are a form of judgment. For others, it's a blessing. Because the Lord is working in them so that they can hear it at that moment or they will be able to hear it, to understand and believe. So let me give you a real life example. We have all seen movies and television shows of a courtroom scene. I saw one not too long ago actually. And the the verdict is announced by the jury. And what happens? The person finds out they're guilty. They slap the table. They push themselves back. They stand up. They point at the judge. They yell at the judge. They turn around and they look at the jury and they say, I'm not guilty. How dare you? I'm innocent. This is absurd. This is crazy. Sometimes they even push their own attorney and and they say unkind remarks to their counselor and they beat the table 
I'm not guilty. We've seen, I, this has been in, it happens a lot in movies and television shows. But what's the reality of the situation? They're going where? They're going to jail. They're under judgment. They have been found guilty. And they've refused to believe. They refuse to hear. They refuse to listen. But judgment has been cast upon them. And that's what's going on in this parable. Judgment is being pronounced and they don't hear it. They don't believe it. They don't listen. That's what Jesus is trying to help his apostles understand. So that's just a little footnote about parables that Jesus uses in the course of his ministry. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the power and significance of the word. Look at verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. So Jesus is telling the parable of the sower and he talks about the seed being cast in many different locations in many different places and most don't hear. Most don't believe. But the seed does land in good soil. And that represents the Word of God. And that when God sends forth His Word, that, there, that those who have been appointed to life, His children, the elect, that when the Word goes forth to them, that is great, moist, fertile soil. And God's Word accomplishes what it's been sent out to do, which is the salvation of all those that belong to Him. God's Word brings His people to faith. He speaks and they are made alive. This is an important teaching that we believe according to Scripture. I want you to hear that, I want you to hear from Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Notice that. The power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul is telling us that the Word of God is power. That God sends His Word and it is instrumental in changing us and shaping us and forming us and giving us faith and allowing us to follow after our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is power in the Word. There is power in the Word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God continually because when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. It's a wonderful thing that God has spoken and that his word has power and it has authority over our lives, that it enters into us and it changes us. No other no other book can do that. This is special. This is Christ speaking. It is God talking to His children. And He comes to us in His Word. 
with a message of love and a message of redemption, a promise that He loves us and He accepts us and that He has placed His name on us, that He will never let us go. And all of that comes to us in power through the Word of God to make us more and more like Jesus. Good news. God is not a distant deity that does not speak, that we cannot know, that we cannot approach, that we have no idea what He thinks, we have no idea what He wants to do, that, that we're lost, that we're in the darkness. Not our God. Not our God. He has spoken words of love to His children from Genesis to Revelation to remind us that there is a place for us forever in His presence. It's an unbelievable thing. It's an encouragement to our souls this morning. I, I, I will share with you that, that there was a time in my life where I had, I had real doubts about the Word of God. It was in my early 20s. I, I wasn't sure it was true. I thought on some level, perhaps, that I believed this book or did believe this book because I was born to a Christian home and my parents are Christians and I grew up in the church and I happened to be born in the deep south in the United States and maybe if I had been born somewhere else or to a different family that I would not believe. That maybe perhaps that this book is just simply a collection of myths and legends from the ancient Middle East. That maybe it's nothing more than that. And so I really struggled with this. Because if the Word of God is not true, then is God true? And then, is there a God? Logical progression. And so I began to buy books and to read about whether or not the Bible was true and whether or not Christianity was true and whether or not God even existed and He was really there. And it was a real existential crisis. It was a real struggle. And I remember a meeting with a, a minister and I just poured out my heart to him. Here are all the questions I have about all of this. And I thought that he was going to give me very in-depth theological and philosophical answers to all the concerns and questions that I had. And he didn't. And with the wisdom of 40-something, 45 years of ministry, he looked at me and he said, Hunter, have you just read the Bible? My answer was, you know, in, in bits and pieces, yeah, right. He said, Hunter, our God is a big God. And His Word is true. Every single word. And it can defend itself. It can take care of itself. So why don't you just go to the Word and read and see if it speaks to you and see if Jesus, the Word that is come in the flesh, can answer your questions. And so He made the suggestion to read Luke and Acts or to read the New Testament. So I decided to just read Luke and Acts. I read it, and something very interesting happened. That the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. And the power of God began to help me see 
the truth of His Word. And when I finished Acts, I decided to begin with the Gospels and read the New Testament all the way through. And it was amazing how it came to life for me and the words jumped off the pages and some of my questions were answered, but some of them were not. But here's what the Lord did through the power of His Word. He calmed my soul. Because that's what the Word of God, that's what the Word of God does. It calms our souls. It gives us perspective. It gives us hope. It aligns us with the will of God. And the more time that I spent in the Word of God, the more reassured I was about the truths of Scripture. It awakens our heart. It does unbelievable things for God's people. And so we should go to the Word. We should consume the Word. It should be the light that guides our path. The Word should be what we center our life on. Westminster Shorter Catechism says it's the only rule for faith and life. The only rule for faith and life. Here's 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, often I've heard that verse and I think in terms of a pastor preaching and he's explaining the word and he's teaching and rebuking and correcting his congregation. But one of the things that you need to understand is you can also interpret this passage to mean you individually or as a family encountering the word of God. That when you come to the Word, when you open up your life to the Word, you open up your heart to the Word, you engage Scripture, what God is going to do through the work of the Holy Spirit is that He is going to teach you and He's going to rebuke you and correct you and train you so that you can live for Him, that you can live for Christ, and that, you, that your life is a form of worship because of how the Word of God is working in you. One of the interesting things about being a pastor is that the longer you do this, the more people you get to know. And I will tell you that those that I have met along this journey that are the most rooted in their relationship with Jesus are the ones that are most rooted in Scripture. That when I learn about them and I get to know them and I explore their life spiritually, these people that that you can just tell they have a passion and desire and a love for Jesus that is unmatched. I also find a love and a passion and desire that is unmatched for the Word of God. It just seems to go hand in hand. And so for us, the Word is our manual, it's our guide, it's a life spring of hope. It grounds us. We need the Word shaping us and molding us and directing us. And then we have to remember what Jesus' brother James said in chapter 1, verses 22. He says, Do not merely listen to the Word and so, do, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Hear that again. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. You see, if we belong to Jesus, if we are His, 
if we have been adopted into the family of God, then we have a desire because of the resurrection and because of the gospel working in us and because of his sacrifice, sacrifice on the cross, we will have a desire to do what it says. Not because we think this is saving us, but because we know it is the right course for our life because God is all wise and perfect and holy and sovereign and this is him speaking and we want to obey because we love what he has done for us. I tell my children all the time, listen and obey. It's almost like a song. Listen and obey. Sometimes I'll add for there is no other way. Listen and obey. I don't expect them to listen and obey because they're afraid of me. They have to perform for me. I believe that they will listen and obey because they know that their dad loves them beyond measure. So let us do what the word says. Second point. <clears throat> Salvation comes from the Lord. Verse 11. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. So Jesus is talking about the secret of the kingdom of God with the apostles. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that the secret of the kingdom is mentioned. And what he's telling them is that for many, when they hear my parables, they will believe that they are citizens of the kingdom of God. But there are many, as we mentioned earlier in the footnote, that there are many, when they hear the parables, they will not believe. It will be a form of judgment. They are outside the kingdom. They will never enter into the kingdom. This is, in some sense, the mystery of election, that God has chosen some and He has not chosen others. This is not a theological invention of Hunter Brewer. This is the theology of Scripture. That when you look at the Bible, beginning in Genesis all the way to Revelations, you are reminded time and time again that God has chosen some and that He has placed His love upon them. Here's Psalm 62, 1 and 2. Truly my soul finds rest in God. Hear this. My salvation comes from Him. Truly He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Jesus says in John chapter 6 that all that the Father has given to Him will come to Him and He will never lead them astray. That the Father has a group of people that He is going to bring to Jesus, to bring to the cross, and there He will save His people. He will save His children. That for a reason in which we cannot understand, it's a mystery of the kingdom. God has placed His love upon some, on others He has not. And so for some people, this is something that's very difficult and hard to swallow. But let me give you my, sort of my take on the mystery of election. So on Saturdays, I like to practice my sermon. I like to talk it out. And sometimes I will do that at my house when Vicky and the kids are gone because it feels odd and strange to walk around the house saying your sermon with the kids running around everywhere and Vicky doing something in the den or the kitchen. It just seems awkward. So when they're gone, 
Sometimes I'll walk around the house talking out my sermon. We have a dog. We have a very faithful dog. We have a very loving dog. This dog worships me. Truly does. I don't know why. I haven't done anything to deserve it. And so when I walk, when I talk out my sermon, when I walk around the house, my dog follows me every step of the way, right behind me, four inches from my feet. I go in every room. I go down every hall. I go up the stairs. I go up in every room upstairs. Sometimes I even walk into the garage. And where is my dog? Right here. Sometimes I even trip over my dog. I fall because of my dog because she is so lovingly obedient and wants to be beside me all the time. It can't get annoying. Now, here's the thing. She doesn't understand what I'm doing. I've told her many times to sit, to go away. She won't do it. She wants to be right beside me. There is no possible earthly human way that I can explain to her why it is a waste of time for her to follow me. I can't explain to her why she should not be doing this. I cannot get her to understand why she should just go sit in a chair in the den and be at peace and stop bothering me while I'm doing this. Why is that? Because my perspective in some sense is infinite. Like I have a human perspective of the situation. I know what is going on. I know what I'm doing. Her perspective is very finite. She has a dog's mind. She doesn't understand human communication and language. And so there's no way for me to get down onto her level and say, stop doing this. You're bothering me. You're wasting your time. You just need to go sit in this chair and be at peace. I can't communicate that. I cannot descend to her level and enable her to understand that. It's not going to happen. And so it is with the mystery of election. We have a God who is infinite in His understanding of all things. And we are finite. Not only are we finite, our minds are shackled by the effects of sin, because of the curse, because of the fall. And so we're like a dog that cannot understand human language. We cannot comprehend the mysteries of God. He is so far above us. He is so far above us. So part of the mystery is the knowledge of God. Part of it is that He has chosen in His good pleasure not to disclose all things to us. That's our God. That's who He is. That's what He has determined to do. And when we think about Scripture, when we look at the Bible, who are the two titans of Scripture beyond Jesus? In the Old Testament, you could say it's Moses. In the New Testament, you could say it's Paul. And what do Paul and Moses say about the, this mystery, this mystery of the kingdom, of that God has chosen some and not others? Paul and Moses echo each other. Who are we to know the mind of God? Who are we as the clay to tell the potter how we should be shaped and formed? I think it's significant and important that both Paul and Moses talk about this. 
that they're trying to help us understand as God's children that there is a role, that there are designations. He is the Father. We are not. He is the Father. We are His children. And that we respect that. And we understand that. And that we know also because of the fall that our knowledge is limited. He is God. And we are not. And for me, that helps me come to grips and understand this mystery of election. But I'll tell you this, that when you rightly understand election, when you rightly understand God's sovereignty, I want to tell you what it did for me many years ago. It gave me peace. It really did. It gave me peace. Because I realized that He has saved me. That it is up to Him. That He has done all the work. And it's no longer something that I do. And I gave up trying to save myself. And rested in Him and Him alone. And that was a life-changing thing for me. The peace of God's sovereignty working in my heart and in my life. Think back to what I said in Psalm chapter 62. David says in the very beginning of this passage, truly my soul finds rest in God. It's a restful and peaceful thing when we embrace the mystery on one hand and on the other hand we realize that God has pursued us in love. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world that He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to give His life for us, and that we have been redeemed and accepted and adopted and brought into the family of God, it has nothing to do with me. Nothing. It all comes from the Father. That's an unbelievable thing. It really is. And let me tell you, I've experienced this personally. A father who adopted me and brought me into his family and placed his love upon me and has been kind and gracious to me throughout the course of my life. My name was changed. He's been a blessing to me. I've seen this from an earthly reality and it helps me understand what it looks like from a spiritual reality. And it's good that a father can come and love you and accept you and bring you into his family and give you his name and lavish you with good gifts and you don't deserve any of it. You don't deserve any of it. That's why election is such a beautiful thing. We've been set free from self-righteousness to love and to worship and to serve him. Hear that. We have been set free from self-righteousness to love and worship and follow Him. He does all the work. He comes to us. That's the good news of the Gospel. And it's hard to understand sometimes 
because we're fallen and broken and sinful and we want to do it. We want to save ourselves. We want to be our own God. We want to be in charge. We want to take the lead. We want all the credit. We want all the fame. We want all the glory. It's really hard to step back and to surrender to the fact that God has done it all. That He has done it all in Jesus Christ. Let that be an encouragement to your souls this morning. May that strengthen your hearts and create in you a stronger desire and passion to love Him and follow after Him and worship Him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we rejoice for all that You have done for us, that You have sought us out, that You have not forgotten us, that You have not allowed us to waller in our rebellion and sin, to just lay there in defeat, but that You have pursued us in Jesus Christ, Your Son, and You have blessed us. You have saved us. You have redeemed us. Oh God, You have been so good to us, and we thank You, we praise You, and we worship You this day. It's in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we pray. Amen.